This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Surfing is a tough sport. The competition is fierce. The elements are fierce. And to get to the top, it's a lifetime of dedication and discipline. Australian surfer Owen Wright's one of the few people that reached the top of his sport. But then a wipeout and a traumatic brain injury. All of a sudden, one of the world's best surfers couldn't walk, couldn't speak properly, but somehow he made it back. Later, we're going to speak to Owen Wright and his wife, someone we all know really well at Triple J, singer-songwriter Keita Alexander, about this inspiring sporting comeback. How did he do it? It's a big listen. That's coming up later in the podcast. But first, what's this about Sydney's cocaine wars? Hack. The common thread police say is the sale of drugs in Sydney. They say it's escalated in recent weeks from firing warning shots to outright murder. On Triple J. Drug cartels, gangland attacks, people being gunned down in the streets. This is all playing out in Sydney. You've probably seen a bit about it in the news. People have died. Police are worried about what could happen next. So what is this fighting over? Well, cocaine, apparently, and who runs this drug trade in Sydney? A Greens MP is even saying we should legalise cocaine to stop the violence to put these drug bosses out of business. There's a lot, right? So let's find out more. Perry Duffin is a crime reporter at the Sydney Morning Herald. You know him from The Shake-Up. But he's also covering this story really closely. And he's with us now. Hey, Perry, thanks for coming on. No worries, Dave. Good to be here, mate. What's going on in Sydney at the moment? Like, if you're just seeing some of the headlines online, in the papers or whatever, it's pretty dramatic. Yeah. I mean, well, we've basically had a couple of years of escalating violence and then the last month has been really, really bad. We had five people shot in five days last week. Two people died. Um, And the last month, police believe, traces back to the murder of a cocaine kingpin in Bondi a month ago named Alan Meradian. And since his death, there's been quite a bit of fighting and infighting in the underworld about who controls Sydney's coke trade, basically. So this really is all about the cocaine trade. Yeah, it is. It's just such a profitable drug to sell here that these gangs are willing to fight and die to keep control of that market. How are the police responding? Because I saw they set up like a task force, like they're investigating, but are they freaking out about how this could escalate? Yeah, they they are because they've set up this thing called Strike Force Magnus or Task Force Magnus, which is a bunch of strike forces bundled together when they basically realised a lot of these crimes were related and linked to the same problem, which is the coke trade. And police are worried because these shootings were becoming daylight. They were becoming really public. They were becoming... Uh, they were, you know, they were targeting people who were not um, what you might consider to be too closely linked to the trade. So we had people walk into a barbershop in Marrickville in the middle of the day, in the middle of Sydney, and open fire and shoot two guys. They both survived. But once you start involving the public, once you start involving regular people in the middle of the day, it's just too dangerous and the cops had to react. So you're speaking to police. What are they telling you? Well, the police are pretty certain that, you know, this is extremely dangerous. These high-level, you know, cartels that operate over here, they have to be broken up. They have to stop, um, you know, doing this trade. Cops on the ground, um, 
they have a bit of frustration that they're constantly having to deal with this. I had uh, one officer say um, that he would be preferring to deal with um, more worthy victims, such as people who have suffered sexual assault or domestic violence, and yet so much of his time and resources are being taken up chasing down drug dealers. Wow. I mean, and, and then we've seen like all of the calls from, you know, some politicians like the Greens MP, Kate Fairman, saying, oh, we need to just legalise cocaine. That had put these drug bosses out of business. Like, is that something that's realistically being talked about? Well, at the higher level of the police, no, they don't want that. But as I always say to people, I don't think it's really fair to ask police their opinion on whether or not a law is right or wrong. Their job is to enforce it. Mm. Um, they have their private opinions and the top police don't, you know, as far as we know, they're very, very dedicated to stopping this because it's not so much, you know, people using a bag at, you know, the Coogee pub or whatever. It's more about the violence that comes along with it that they're trying to stop. Um, you know, it's the kidnappings, it's the shootings. And more than that, if you look at the coke trade globally, it starts in South America and before it gets here to Australia, there is a huge amount of human misery that goes into it. It's We're talking about elections being interfered with by these cartels. They've got not millions of dollars, but billions of dollars. They're very dangerous. They engage in murder across the world. They are not the sort of people who are just trying to make sure everyone has like a cool, fun weekend. They're a serious, scary operation of people, very dedicated. And I think that's really what the police see when they look at this, whereas the average person who buys a, a bag on the weekend, they see a very different experience of the coke trade. Mm. And so that's why a lot of the police on the ground are frustrated because they feel like there's not a whole heap of point of locking up small timers when you need to be going after the big dogs. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with crime reporter Perry Duffin from the Sydney Morning Herald about uh, this warfare we're seeing in Sydney, this uh, cocaine wars it's being called by some people. Perry, does Sydney have a history of violence like this? Yeah, it sort of comes in cycles where if you go back five years, um, you know, or, or, or eight years, there were warring gangs everywhere in Sydney and um, it was all over the same thing. It was over the drugs and gangsters were shooting each other. They were winding up dead. Um, and it escalated to the point, much like this, where random people were catching bullets. And when that happens, the police start to really escalate it. That tends to um, get a good result um, because, but also the other thing that actually solves this problem is that all the people who are really seriously committed to shooting each other or getting shot, that happens. They kill each other off. And the only people that are left are sort of uh, lower level and perhaps don't think it's worth dying for. Right. That's, that's so interesting. I mean, crime reporters obviously cover this stuff every day, but, you know, general public is now getting a real insight into this. I mean, Sydney specifically, why is it such a hotspot for cocaine? Oh, it's, it's the money. So a few years ago, the Australian Federal Police did this operation where they basically convinced the world's uh, drug cartels to use a fake encrypted app. And then they sort of went, jumped out and went, surprise, we've been watching you the whole remember time. remember this, yeah. And so when that happened, they seized so much Coke and all of a sudden Sydney's Coke supply went to zero and the price went crazy. And so all of the cartels around the world thought we need a piece of this action and now we're getting tons stopped at the border every week. 
Oh, look, this is a story that's going to keep playing out. We know that you're going to stay across it and keep us across it. Perry Duffin, crime reporter at the Sydney Morning Herald, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Hack. And he's away. He's going to take home an Olympic bronze medal. The victory lap for Owen Wright, a bronze medal for the Australian. On Triple Jack. It's one of Australia's greatest and most inspiring sporting comebacks. Owen Wright, one of our best-known surfers, known around the world, one of the biggest names competing against the biggest names. The first surfer to post two perfect scores in a single event. Owen Wright was at the peak of it when something happened in 2015 that changed his life forever. He had a wipeout in Hawaii. Owen suffered a traumatic brain injury and just like that, One of the world's best surfers couldn't walk, couldn't talk properly, let alone surf. But somehow, incredibly, he came back. He started winning again and he even took out an Olympic medal in Tokyo. How he got there is amazing. And it's not just Owen's story because you may know that Owen Wright is married to someone Triple J listeners definitely know, Australian singer-songwriter Keita Alexander. And he's written a book telling their story. It's called Against the Water. It's so good, and I'm really happy to say that they're both with me now to talk about their journey. Owen Wright, Keter Alexander, welcome to Hack. Thanks for having us. Owen, it seems pretty impossible to describe your connection with surfing and how ingrained in your life it is. Like you got your first surfboard when you were five years old. You dropped out of school at 15 to focus on becoming a pro surfer. Your sister Tyler, of course, a world champion surfer. Your dad raised you on surfing. Before you got this traumatic brain injury in 2015, did you ever see a life beyond surfing? Never. I still struggle to see past surfing. (laughs) You know, now now that I'm uh, retired from competing, I still look back at it and go, well, I don't want to do anything else. Uh, (laughs) That was the one one thing I've always wanted to do. It's a really interesting life for people that don't know much about it because there's a lot of discipline, right? And mm-hmm. that might go against what people think of of surfing, like laid-back mm-hmm. surfers, but actually pursuing a professional career in this sport, what is it like? Yeah, my dad had a really disciplined nature. Um, and so our approach to surfing was very much his approach. We trained from a young age. We did Tai Chi, deep breathing, you know, strict diets. And this is as a teenager. This is as a teenager and younger. My younger brother and my younger sister, Tyler, she must have started at such a young age. Um, we, we were so regimented. He he wanted to get us into some uncomfortable situations physically and mentally to kind of test our test our mental fortitude for what was to come in the years ahead. Like, I feel that he really did have a plan for us to become you know, surfing champions. You write in the book, my father was determined to raise exceptional children who'd grow into exceptional adults. Mm. I mean, the good thing about this book, even if you're not into surfing or know much about surfing, you're going to be hooked in because it's about relationships at the core of it. Yeah. And one of the biggest that you explore in this book is your relationship with your dad, which a lot of young guys are probably going to resonate with. Did you ever resent your dad for the emphasis that he put on your success? Yeah, definitely at times. I think I do a good job in the book of showing the two sides to that coin. You know, there's, I start resenting him, not enough, not enough freedom, 
too strict, you know, and wanting to break away, which I think as men, we all kind of go through with our father figure. And then also that part where he had such good ways that I also cherished what he had to give me and what he had when I had to, you know, what I wanted to learn from him, how to become a champion. Like that was, he, he seemed to know a way and, and he was adamant and sure. So it was like, asked him to be, be the guy to help me get to the world tour. But it was kind of tricky Right, because he had these different roles in your life. Like he's your dad, mm. he's training you as well. I'm guessing you're confiding in him a lot as a friend, like because you're so close to him, you're traveling around the world. That must have been so tough. Yeah, it, there was all those tough moments like I want to go out and have fun with my friends and, you know, and he's kind of like, well, you're here to compete and win and, and, and we've put so much time towards this and you, you know, he's feeling that let down and I'm feeling that I'm letting him down, but I'm wanting to live and, you know, be free, but also like want to achieve great things. And then in turn now becoming a father myself, it's, it's like, you know, there's this, the dynamics that it takes to raise kids like that. And, you know, the appreciation I have for him that I had for him in the time. And then also now even more so, but during the time going through it, it was there was so much turmoil, but great times. And but at the end, I, I got to achieve my dreams. So it was there's that balance, right? There's definitely like a lot of reflection mm. in the book, and like you don't beat around the bush either. Like there are times where you recall conversations where you're being maybe a bit of an asshole. I don't know. And that you're really honest about it. Yeah. How hard is it to be that brutally honest looking back at your life and going, oh, I was a bit of a dickhead. Totally, man. That's that's something that's, I think, all young guys growing up at some stage to re- when you kind of have that breakaway moment with your father or however that happens that you you need to come to terms with that. Hey, I was a bit of a dickhead there. And, 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 and he really kind of admired me for coming to him and saying, "Hey, like I, you know, I need your help, or I'm sorry for acting that way." And but going into that, I, I couldn't hide from that in my book, you know, like that I wanted to be honest and open. That my part to play in, in the dynamic was always there. There's so much that happens in your early life; it's fascinating. But we kind of move on, and then Keita, you enter Owen's life. You're pretty young at the time, right? So you're 19 yeah. when you meet Owen. Owen, how old were you? I was 20, 25. You didn't know much about surfing at the time, right, Keita? Because, like, you had your whole music career yeah. kicking off. You're doing stuff in the US. You're touring here. What did you think of Owen when you met him? Um, yeah, look, I was overseas when we first started talking on Instagram. We had lots of mutual friends. But, look, when we first caught up... Uh, yeah, I always say to him, in a crowded bar, if we hadn't have met on Instagram, I wouldn't have known who he was. He likes to say otherwise. You know, he likes to think I was a Stop massive diehard. <laughs> throw you under the bus. But when I first saw him, I was like, wow, this is he's such an incredibly looking, good looking surfer guy, just my type. <laughs> but at the time, I don't think I really knew your age. Maybe I did, but wasn't shy of the age gap. Owen didn't know my age. But yeah, our relationship happened really quickly. I look back at it and go, it was a really incredible moment in our relationship where it was either make or break. And when the injury happened, um, you know, it broke Owen. It could have almost broke us, but now on the other end of it, we're stronger for it. 
You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Australian surfing royalty Owen Wright and singer-songwriter Keita Alexander, who you probably know is married to Owen. He's got a new book out. It's called Against the Water, which talks about his comeback after a traumatic brain injury. Owen, 2015, Pipeline, this is where it all happened. I'm sure this brings up a lot of trauma. You say you still get chills when you think about it. Are you able to explain what happened? Yeah, I can talk about it and I do get chills every time. It brings up a pretty uncomfortable feeling. You know, the morning I woke up, it was the morning of the Pipe Masters, the last event of the year. I was in a um, world title contention. I was full of confidence. It was the same year I came off the back of two perfect heats in Fiji. So I was full of confidence. Um, and I think that confidence was that had a part to play in my lapse of judgment out in the 15-foot-plus surf at, at Pipeline. Instead of bailing my board, I just decided to duck dive, which bailing my board, you, you, you kind of chuck your board to the side and dive to the bottom, right, and, and you get underneath the wave, whereas I just duck dive, which gets you about two foot under, um, and this giant wave just basically just bombed on me and, and um, knocked the lights out of me. How do you describe that? Like, what did it feel like? Yeah, I mean, I remember just being trying to survive and I have like, I don't have like the perfect string of memory of that, but I have like the feeling and then glimpses. I, I, and I feel like I, I was just so out of it, like just trying to stay afloat. My friend Mick, he, he was close by me and he just said I'd just look like a ghost. But somewhere inside of me I had a big enough adrenaline response to um, keep myself conscious in the ocean until I got back to land. I mean that in itself is amazing because, you know, a few days later you can't even walk but somehow mm-hmm. you were able to pull yourself out. You even managed to call Kita. Yeah. And Kita, you were touring in Australia at the time because this is in Hawaii. Yeah. What was going through your head? I hadn't been around surfing that long. Um, he calls me, he goes, I've had a big wipeout. And he just kept repeating himself. He's like, I feel really weird. I don't know what's going on. Um, what can you do from in a different country? And I was like, oh, okay, just get some rest, maybe have a sleep, which and is obviously the wrong thing to say. You're pretty new on the scene too, right? Yeah, probably only a few months in. Yeah. And, I, yeah, I didn't know what to offer him. He he wasn't bleeding, he hadn't broken any bones, so I just thought he must have been exhausted. Not once did it cross my mind that he would have been concussed or had bleeding on the brain. So, to be honest, I probably would have got maybe a little bit annoyed at the repetition of what he was saying and been like, look, You're just like, get shut sleep. the yeah, F up. I'm going to go, I'm on to a... No, I didn't say that, but... And then the Speaking next... of acting like assholes, no, I'm just <laughs> yeah, no, kidding. No, just no kidding. looking back on it, we laugh now, but obviously of it was a traumatic time for Owen at the time. If you don't laugh, knowing... you cry. Yeah, true, I, I always <laughs> say that. But then the next call I get is from Tyler and I was in hospital and she's saying, can you get over here? So... I had to. I had a week of riding with Julia Stone and Dan Hume, and I just said, "Guys, I've got to go." So you find out that you've got this traumatic brain injury, Owen. Mm. Can you briefly say, like, what's the difference between a concussion and a traumatic brain injury? Yeah, so concussion is mostly swelling on the brain, but you know it can be like six weeks recovery, eight weeks, three months, six months. Whereas I had a, a severe concussion, and then. I had a minor bleed on the brain, which pushes it into a TBI. So when it goes into that category, it's like you're talking years before 
recovery happens. Yeah, what did they say to you in terms of the time frame? They said in the hospital it was like five to ten years and we don't know, we haven't had a surfer and just had this accident before, we, we don't really know what to think and it was all this scary stuff. Is your first response just to reject it? Are you just like, no, I can surf again, I can walk again and I'm not letting this stop me? Man, I think just everything in my upbringing had led me to this point in my life, right, where it was like, I was at my most fear. You potentially never going to recover. We don't know how long, years, no career, you know, what it is, all this mean. I think in the face of that fear, I just hit like some type of turbo inside myself for like, I am not listening to this and I'm adamant that I'm getting out of this place. In a way, it seems like your attitude was delusional because it was going against what everyone says. And I guess it was in a way. Definitely was. But you were pushing. Like they were like, you can't be on a plane. You're like, I'm getting on a plane. They were like, you can't walk. You can't surf, obviously. And you ignored it, right? Mm -hmm. Do you look back on that part with regret at all? I look back on it and, and the whole thing and at times wish that I even had the foresight to understand that I'd had concussions prior to that concussion to maybe just have the awareness that that you can be concussed. I wish I listened a little more and I wish I went to the rehabilitation clinic for three months and the, follow the protocols as such because, you know, I think what transpired was like fear and being stuck and, you know, feeling like I was left alone, feeling like I was in a place where I wasn't getting care and how could, how could the people around me say like Keita and my family understand that I needed like professional care but like how was, they, how was I supposed to get there if I was so ref, like refused the actual professionals? Keita, what was Owen like during this time? Just strong-minded. He's like, this is what I want to do and I need to do it now. And I always said, what am I going to do? Like, you know, I think half of your family were like, well, maybe you should listen to the doctors, Owen. And Tyler and I were like, well, what are we going to do? Hold him down? He's six foot three. Like, <laughs> what do you expect us to do? Chain him to this bed? He wants to go home. <laughs> so... I, I don't know if I ever saw it as delirious from my perspective, more just like this is what he wants, where let's do it. And from my end, I look, you know, I look back and go, that's my age showing and that's my naivety and of injuries and all of that stuff. But I also still stand by the fact is I couldn't have held him down. I didn't know you not so much regretted it, but maybe wish you went and stayed in the three-month clinic in Hawaii. I ha- like, like I have the thoughts. It's, mm, it's, more, it it's more that there was a tough journey, mm. but nonetheless, I'm sitting on the other side of it, great things still happened later. It's just this thing that I do look back at and go, and I wonder if it could have been a little easier okay. on everyone around me as well as myself because it was quite traumatic for everyone. This is Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with surfing champion Owen Wright and his wife, Keita Alexandra, about his recovery from a traumatic brain injury. Owen, as you say, like despite the regrets about how you handled the situation initially, listening to medical advice, all that stuff, despite all that, maybe because of it, you did pull through and you had this incredible, not only sporting, but life comeback did you feel a lot of pressure to get back to competing after you were injured? You know what? I hadn't spoken about it for years. People had heard about it, but nobody really going to know how bad it really was until they have a read of the book, right? Like it's, and, and, and they'll get glimpses of it here now, but it was really bad. My entire network from management team, sponsors, the rest of it were um, happy for me to 
finish up. Um, it was, they never thought I was ever going to come back. There was no pressure on me because they were happy to see out my days and retire me. I guess for me, I, it's not like I felt that pressure from them, but I think my internal clock was just wound up and just, it was like I was ready. I was primed for an accident that big to to recover from it. I mean, I was relentless with my recovery. I was every day, rain, hail or shine, whether it was tears or whatever it was or how pear-shaped it went through the day, not being able to remember where or who I was or, you know, I'd push myself that hard during recovery, well, not recovery, but during rehabilitation that I was relentless and it got me to where I got to, but yeah, it was a, it was a real, real struggle. There's a good quote on the book, like a testimonial of your character <laughs> from Liam Hemsworth, who's like, Owen's one of those guys that operates on one speed. Oh, I'm not going to swear, but it says... It's the let's effing go speed. Sunday barbecue, let's effing go. 15-foot barrels onto dry reef, let's effing go. You were into it, right? And you did manage to come back. You started mm-hmm. winning again. Yeah. You did manage to get to the Olympics where surfing was featured as a sport for the first time in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. When did you decide, okay, I've made it, but that's it? I think for me it was twenty end of 2018, it was like, oh, this recovery yeah I've regained my life great I'm on tour great I am struggling still and the Olympics became that next target that was like let's and go right <laughs> and it became that light at the end of the tunnel and um, this beautiful experience that the Olympics coming into surfing for the first time there was all this extra tension to surfing and me being one of the better better guys that I end up finding some help from professionals to help me continue to heal and and I end up getting some amazing results and, and qualifying for the Olympics and then basically putting that medal around my neck was that moment, man, where I was like, yeah, I'm back. I've done it. <laughs> How did you feel, Keita? I mean, you've just been through this process of caring, of getting Owen back on his feet. Mm. Were you like, oh, loving this moment or time to wrap it up mate you know what's funny is i i kind of see the olympics similar to how i saw snapper rocks when he first came back and won his first event in the fact with the snapper event no one knew knew what he was capable of until that event prior to his free surfing beforehand i don't think anyone thought he would get through a round so the fact that he won the first comp that was a shock to everyone I know a shock to Owen. And then with the Olympics, I'm not saying this was a shock, but I'm not saying we didn't have our hopes set at a high level. It's just every round was like, whoa, yes, he's doing it, he's doing it. And when he got that medal, it was just a shock. It was like, oh, my God, how is Owen the very first Australian surfer to ever win a medal at the Olympics? I just always say he's, like, always made history. And so what happens now, Owen? I just feel like my life's worked in a beautiful way I've got to achieve my ultimate which was the Olympic medal extremely proud of that and retiring in a time where Keita is still young and wants to start releasing music again and I've been able to play this support role for Keita and kind of try to take the the kids off her hands as much as I can after she's just played this like role for me which is like you know, so supportive, like, you know, at times washing me through the 
through the really tough times. And you're pretty busy now with music, right? Yeah. Owen's actually been managing me for the last year and a half. Oh, okay. Yeah. So this is what we planned <laughs> yeah. for this whole life. It's all been to become a music manager. <laughs> He's self-managed his career for majority of his career. Um, and so when I stopped working with my prior management, Owen's like, you and I, let's just do it. We can do this. And I was like, I don't think you understand music, babe. Like there's a lot more people involved. There's a lot more companies involved. <laughs> but we go. somehow did it. Yeah, you said let's effing go. And <laughs> we did it. He's gotten like some incredible opportunities for me just through the people he knows and um, gotten some incredible record label deals for me. Like he's done an incredible job of always being a huge supporter of my music. He's my number one fan. <laughs> oh, that's so cute. <laughs> we love to end on that note. Let's effing go. You've written a book, Owen. <laughs> Author. How does it feel? Author. Oh, it, it feels good. You know, I was a little nervous to put it all down on paper and it was a bit of a tough slog to put it down. But um, now that it's out there, I'm, I'm feeling that excitement and, and a bit of a completion of something, you know, like that, I guess that task. It's not the final chapter, but, you know, we love a pun. <laughs> <laughs> Owen Wright, Keita Alexander, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Jeez, thanks for having us. Yeah. Hack on Triple J. Let's effing go. Go get the book. That's what we're effing going to do. It's called Against the Water. It's out now. Go check it out. Already a lot of people saying, Keita and Owen, my favourite couple. Someone says, the only reason I still believe in love. Hope they're doing well and recovering from this traumatic time. Another person says, book ordered, cannot wait. What an amazing story. Can't wait for all of it. And someone else says, I had a similar traumatic brain injury to Owen while skating. And yeah, like he said, straight after I was conscious, but I was like a goldfish. I couldn't do anything. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.